Welcome all to this latest edition of The Punt, our monthly sports show here on The 42 with me, Gavin Cooney. Uh, we are here as ever in partnership with William Hill, so please always gamble responsibly. And for more information, you can visit gamblingtherapy.org. This is a bumper European Championship preview special. So joining us to look ahead to Euro 2020 trademark, our football writer and broadcaster with The Times, Canal Plus, and many others, Tom Williams. Hello, Tom. Hi, Gavin. Also here is AFP's football correspondent, Kieran Canning. Hi, Kieran. Hi, Gavin. And the Independence Chief Football Writer, Miguel Delaney, is here as well, live from St. George's Park. Hi, Miguel. Hello, guys. Miguel, since you're in closest proximity to the England squad, I will start with you. Um, like, might they win this thing? Uh, I think they've got a very good chance. I'd have them in the top three teams. Uh, I think they've probably got overall the second strongest squad in the tournament, uh, maybe just below the French, albeit with maybe more weaknesses, maybe particularly at the back, it's not quite as balanced as the French squad. Uh, but given other elements like home advantage, and also the fact that I think I think this competition is going to be really distorted by the calendar and the fact so many players have played so many minutes, uh, that it could be one of those tournaments like 2002, in which there was a similar break between the end of the season and the Champions League that, that caused loads of upsets. I think that could be a similar factor. And I really think that fatigue is going to be a huge issue. And maybe... Throw a few, throw in a fair few shocks. Mm. Kieran, are, are you as filled with hope for England? Uh, well, probably as much as, as you guys are here. We've got, we've got a Celtic connection here between the, uh, the Irish Thomas Welsh side and, and me from the Scottish uh, point of view. But maybe to put the, the contrarian point to what uh, Miggs was saying there, for names and talent, you know, this is one of the probably the best England squads, certainly since the, the golden generation. Um, but just what he's saying there in terms of the number of minutes accumulated, I feel like England might be one of the worst affected by that. Um, and not just you know later in the tournament where fatigue might really hit in, but when you look at their preparation, it's been a bit of a shambles both on and off the pitch with obviously the debate over the um, with the distraction of, of the knee and, and all that going on. Um, but just like in a purely football sense, you know, um, none of the Man City or, or Chelsea players playing any minutes in the in the warm up games. Um, huge doubts over Maguire and Henderson's fitness. Um, so they've got all these great attacking players, but we still don't really have any idea who is going to play. You know, does he does he show faith in Rashford and Sterling who have done very well for Southgate? Does he you know um, go with the war? I would say what the the public want at the moment in terms of seeing Grealish and Foden and and Sancho. Um, so yeah, I think there's there's a lot of good players there, but there's there's still a lot of issues for, for England to to work out. Mm. Tom, you could argue that Southgate is is very tactically flexible in the fact that we don't really know what his starting team is yet, or is it more of a case of muddle thinking and not really having his act together as he perhaps should ahead of these championships? I mean, you can look at it both ways. Uh, I think a criticism of of Southgate at the last World Cup, not that he faced much criticism because in in the main he did an excellent job, but. Uh, you know, England was sort of found out tactically by Croatia in the semi-final and, and Southgate didn't really manage to react to it. They were very wedded to that 3-5-2 system. And, and one of the things that he's done very successfully since then is he's, he's mixed things up. They played a 4-3-3, they played with the back three. And I think that means that they have much greater tactical range. They can play in different systems, which is an advantage at international level. Having said that, on the eve of uh, you know a major tournament... 
clearly there's uh, a huge amount of talent in, in, in this England squad, but we don't, we don't really know what we're going to see from them. We're not sure whether it's going to be a back four or a back three. As Kieran said, there are question marks over the fitness of key players. Harry Maguire, uh, Jordan Henderson, most notably, you know, which of those, you know, fantastically gifted attacking players are actually going to make the starting eleven uh, in that first game? So, yeah, I mean, I think that on paper, England have got the talent to win this tournament, but there is there is uncertainty, and I suspect that'll be that'll be quite an important um, feature for England in the group stage. How quickly Southgate can decide on what is going to be his strongest eleven, and and how quickly England can settle, um, you know, with the players he ends up uh, choosing. Mm. Miguel, what do you think he's going to do, Southgate, for that opening opening game? Um, see, this is a, a really interesting question with with Southgate, as Tom's alluded to there. In that, just looking at that England team, it almost feels like, although they've got so many strengths, in order to incorporate one strength, it has to lead to some sort of weakness or compromise everywhere. So, of course, if basically if you cram in an extra one of their many many brilliant attacking attacking players, you leave yourself a bit more exposed at the back or that bit open. And, but then, and of course, the compromise that has been three at the back or maybe a midfield two that is more defensive. And that then comes at the cost of someone like Grealish or Sancho or maybe Sterling. Um, that has naturally led to a lot of uproar and makes the team look that bit more stale. But I actually think there's a much bigger dynamic here that is relevant to how the tournament will go. And because it, it's interesting that Deschamps has basically faced the same debate that Southgate has. And that you've got all these attacking players. Why is the team so dull? <laughs> well, more or less. Um, but this is something that Southgate staff have been looking at a lot. It's, and I think it's a indicative of a growing trend in international football where, and I've done a piece for her tomorrow, actually, so I suppose I can plug that. <laughs> but basically, international football, we see the club game. What we see in the club game is basically intense pressing, frenetic football, really fast pace, and a much more open game. Um, and Grealish, as you spoke about this, about precisely this last week, whereas in club football, apart from the fact that the players are going to be more fatigued and that the national teams have no control over their kind of real conditioning program, given they're just borrowing them from the clubs, um, they, 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 they can't work with them in the same way. So what happens is it's a more sedate version of football. Uh, and also it becomes by almost by definition more defence based. More, and as we've seen in the last few tournaments with France, with Portugal, if you have a solid base and a bit of magic, it's, it feels like the kind of primary ingredient to, uh, to go far. Uh, now, that's probably not what people want to hear. It might make for a duller <laughs> tournament. But I, I do think there's a bit of a logic, logic in that. And I think Southgate will be thinking that way, particularly for the first game against Croatia, given, you know, um, it's a rematch of that 2018 uh, World Cup semi-final, which you know, Thomas said is basically, I suppose, exposed some issues in England. And of course, they have that midfield and Modric that can outpass anyone in the world and particularly maybe that England field mm. Tom do England have a solid base I mean like they're not big question marks at goalkeeper and especially at centre back if Maguire isn't fit which it, he won't be for the first game it looks like yeah I mean I think that's been the case all along really I mean you know we all know Jordan Pickford's limitations um, and I think you know over the second half of the season I can't remember too many howlers but you know that you're never that far away from one with him um I think even if if all of England's defenders were fit I still wouldn't be a hundred percent confident um you know this John Stones Harry Maguire partnership looks good on paper hasn't really been tested all that much I think both of those have um you know have, have weaknesses um I think they can both be exposed in, in different ways um 
the the supporting cast isn't full of sort of you know star names. We know England have got some great options uh, in the fullback positions, particularly at right back, albeit with one less right back now that Trent Alexander Arnold's been ruled out. But I mean, it, defensive solidity is not something that you really associate with this England team. And Ms. Miguel says when it comes to tournament football, that is absolutely vital. And and of course, England fans are looking at the attacking players that they have. Um, and getting excited because you know why wouldn't you? I mean they've got a you know a, a fantastic collection of players, but if if they don't get things sorted out at the other end of the pitch, they're probably not going to go very far. Mm. Uh, Miguel, I do want to ask you briefly about the the whole furore that's take, uh, kicking off now about the England players taking a knee. So Southgate says he and his uh, he and his players are going to continue doing it, and they don't really want to talk about it anymore. But I guess when they're asked about it, that's just what they'll continue to say. Um, it's a kind of extraordinary situation where England will have home advantage for almost all of this tournament but yet will see will be largely held in contempt by a massive section of their own supporters so like will that negate that will that negate the advantage of, of home advantage uh, to contradict myself there or like how do you see that playing out well I mean it's I mean it's a very depressing story on one level but equally in terms of kind of I suppose you know wider themes way beyond football it's somewhat fascinating that this is happening. And I suppose, I mean, not least given this was supposed to be a summer that was kind of, especially especially in, in England with this, the speed of the vaccination program before the variant. But it was supposed to be a summer to, to bring people together, you know, that feeling of communality again, all these kind of images of the 2018 World Cup, people in pubs celebrating. And now, right in the middle of it, we have basically this issue, which couldn't be a more perfect articulation of all of the culture war issues and all these kind of social debates that have been happening in England basically since since Brexit, uh, and and it's it puts the team in an interesting place and kind of all I suppose also, um, you know even kind of put, it puts a focus on the very dynamic of the team given it's so it's so uh, multicultural there's so many diverse backgrounds I think this England team at least fourteen of the players are eligible for other countries you know and, and that's from a range of countries New Zealand. Uh, to Ireland, to Barbados, um, and, and then of course there's this, you know, the dynamic of what has always been, I suppose, a, a fan base that's uh, <laughs> had focus for its for its behaviour and for, I suppose, ultimately right wing beliefs among the fan base. Uh, and from that sense, I mean, it almost feels like the team. It's okay, it isn't just trying to kind of fit a team together, but there's an element of also trying to kind of fit a country together. I mean, that, that that's what the, the power. The team can do, but on the flip side, it's now faced with this, with this huge potential issue, and the fact that, like, and I was going to say the backdrop, not the backdrop, but the almost the, you know, the foreground, literally the foreground, the start of every game could be pretty loud boos, albeit followed by loud applause, uh, over this, uh, this, this ongoing issue. Now, I think the squad, the players, and the manager have been very clear; they're going to continue doing it. They don't care. Um, I suppose there is a potential question. Uh, about whether you know if it goes on, whether it affects people's mentality, whether it kind of unsettles players before games. But the vibe at the moment is very much they're going to it's, it's going to be tunnel vision, um, and it's and it's ultimately about uh, re- I mean the, the message doesn't change basically, so it's it's up for people to either get educated about it or get ignored. Yeah, yeah, festival of communality. That's more of a festival of communism. If you listen to uh, certain uh, morons explaining uh, on why the uh, why the people are booing, the uh, uh, yeah, and as Ian writes, that, that, that it's disingenuous bollocks. 
Yeah. Really, I mean, it's just it's it's such a bogus explanation. Um, but you know, it's but just just add on that on that, Miguel, because I mean, what I mean, it should never shock you, but the government wading in, the British government wading in yesterday on sort of similar issue with um, Ollie Robinson, the English cricketer, who had posted sort of historic um, racist tweets, you know, and and Johnson coming in saying that he wanted to to unite the country, but refusing to sort of criticise or condemn those that, that are booing it. This, that has sort of ramped up this story even more and kept it going, and it's going to be rumbling on um, more and more. I feel like what Johnson said yesterday, you know, again, just gives more fuel to the, the fire of you know, those that are going to boo it. But, but, and again on that, I mean, in exactly the same way, this is basically a core part of the, 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 uh, the electorate and what, what has put Johnson in power, these are also, they're a core part of the England support. I mean, you know, I think it was Ben Roseby that tweeted the other day about how, you know, they're, they're members of the supporters club, but they can't just be waved away as kind of a fringe group. It, they're basically, they're, 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 they're a significant constituency. They kind of almost have to be tackled in some way or have to be confronted in some way. Yeah, and then, I mean, if England do well, then the players and the team will be co-opted by that, by... Johnson and the politicians as proof of, you know, we're this fourth thing country, we've beat Europe, et cetera, et cetera, even though many of the people booing the team are probably more closely aligned to uh, to the politics of the people doing that. But uh, Miguel Miguel says there that he sees England as, as among the top three uh, favourites for this. Kieran, do you uh, do you agree? Uh, yeah, I think, as I said, based on on the players they've got, it's, it's just going to come down to how they get them to, to play as a unit. I think the difference between... I mean, I think that people looking at the squads would think the top three would probably be France, Portugal uh, and England. The difference being that, that both France and Portugal have a bit more of a, a history over the past couple of years of those teams playing together and, and players knowing their roles. At the moment, you know, Foden, Mount, Grealish are all very new. Uh, Bellingham, who could well start, all very new on, on the international scene. So we're still to see England, this England team, which is very different from the, the 2018 team, uh, do it on the, on the international stage. The other thing with England, and we've spoken a lot there about them playing these games at home, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how home advantage plays out in this tournament because there's a number of teams that, that are playing at home and you would think um, that would be an advantage to them. I mean, even being at a few games in the past, the past few weeks, just having 10, 12,000 in the stadiums has made a, a big impact. Um, so that you know that you think should be a, a positive. I'm thinking particularly for teams like Scotland who haven't been there for for a long time, but it could also go the other way. So, for example, if England aren't meeting expectations in the first you know one or two games, if he is playing Sterling and Rashford and Grealish and Foden whatever haven't started, add that into the whole you know issues around the knee. There could be situations where home crowds turn on teams and and players. Whilst they've got out of the habit of the of the positive side of a crowd, I think you've seen the way that, for example, Leicester were inspired during the FA Cup final or Chelsea during the Champions League final. You know, they also haven't had people on their back for a long time, so there could be a, a sort of reverse side to that where, for the home crowd, you know, doesn't play a such a, a positive role. Mm. Uh, Kieran, you mentioned Scotland there. Um, I saw most of their game against the Netherlands, which they were unfortunate not, not to win. They then beat Luxembourg, who. Uh, Irish football fans very tough are, are a serious, serious outfit. Um, so I'm looking at Scotland and pre-tournament optimism. It's usually a cocktail for disaster. So how how are you going to handle the hype? Well, I think it was a very Scottish thing that 
pretty much everyone that I've spoken to was delighted that the Dutch scored that last minute equaliser in the, <laughs> the because if we'd won that game, you know, positivity would have gone far too off the scale. Um, I think there's a there's a there's a quiet confidence around Scotland. You know, we're not. Uh, I was going to come on here and say Wales set the bar in 2016, so uh, anything less than the semi-final would be a disappointment. But um, no, Which I you think have we, now said, by the way. Yeah, but uh, real, realistically, um, I mean, Scotland have never got out uh, of a major tournament group stage, um, so just being there, you know, after 23 years is a is a big achievement. Getting through the group is the is the goal, um, and we've never been in a tournament where it's so easy to get through a group with uh, with only eight teams being going out at the, at the group stage. So, um, all the the uh, attention is, is really on that first game against the Czech Republic. That's the very much the winnable one. Um, as I said, you know, twelve thousand in at Hamden um, should be a boost. Beaten uh, Czech Republic twice recently in the Nations League. Uh, albeit one of those was a, a Czech B team due to, to COVID cases. Um, so really, it, it comes down to that game because Scotland win that game. They go to the game at Wembley and play Croatia at home with little pressure on them. You know, Three points alone might be enough to get you through. Four almost certainly would be. Um, and there's, yeah, there's two, certainly... Two draws could do it. Yeah, well, Portugal in, the, um, in 2016 got through with three draws. Um, so yeah, I think that there's... There's certainly a, a confidence that Scotland have, have improved a lot over the even from when they um, when they qualified in November. There's a lot of players like McTominay, McGinn, um, had very good seasons. Obviously, Tierney, um, Robertson's come back into a little bit of form. Having you know, he he was one of the players that really suffered during that sort of Liverpool dip. Um, now there are certainly issues there. You know, one of the the problems is that pretty much all the good players play in the same position, so not just the the two left backs, but there's a, a whole host of midfielders. So, for example, I would be very surprised if, if Billy Gilmore um, started any of the games. Um, whilst the, there's you know very much problems in centre back, right back, and um, potentially up front as well in terms of who's going to get the goals. Um, but there's certainly a, a solid base there, and, and Scotland fall into that uh, category of teams we talked about at the the start about. You know, you don't have to be spectacular to, to necessarily do well at international level. If, if you're solid and have one or two players that can come up with something special or be very good at set pieces, um, then you can you can cause an upset. And I think, you know, Scotland uh, fall into that category. Mm. Tom on Wales, I mean, it was dream stuff uh, five years ago. Is it asking too much to set the bar at repeating a, a semi-final appearance? Yeah, I'd be very surprised if uh, if Wales reach the semi-finals again. I think the big difference with this Wales team is that it's um, I think that the starting eleven is probably weaker than it was five years ago. But conversely, the squad is is much stronger. Um, there's been much more turnover in terms of players. I mean, it's it's a very different Wales team going into this tournament um, compared to 2016. Um, you, you've still got the same. Uh, key core players in in Gareth Bale and Aaron Ramsey and, and Joe Allen, but a lot of the other Euro 2016 stalwarts have moved on. It, it's quite a youthful team, um, and I think it's a team that's got more strings to its bow tactically. Uh, Wales have played with a back four uh, and a target man. They've played with a, a back three and a false nine, um, and and they they look quite well suited to tournament football. Um, very good defensive record. Uh, over the last sort of two or three years, uh, finished top of their uh, Nations League group, as uh, the Irishman on the call probably don't need reminding. 
uh, getting promoted to League A. Um, only lost one of their last 13 competitive fixtures uh, and keep, yeah, keep a lot of clean sheets. I mean, they've won uh, six of the seven games they've won since the start of September have been 1-0 wins. Uh, and that's been very much the Welsh approach in, you know, in, in recent times. Solid defensively. Uh, and then they have both pace on the counter-attack through Gareth Bale, uh, and particularly Dan James on the other flank. They've also got a threat at set, at set pieces. Um, I think the big talking point for Wales pre-tournament is whether they're going to go into it with a conventional number nine uh, in Kiefer Moore, uh, who had a great season last season at, at Cardiff City in the Championship, got about 20 goals made a really big impact during qualifying for the Euro, sort of came in halfway through the qualifying campaign and, and gave Wales um, a sort of a, a way of playing, gave them an, an attacking template that they didn't have previously. But then since the qualifiers, it, it's, it's been more this 3-4-3 um, three, three with a false nine uh, that Wales have been using more. That's tended to be Harry Wilson as, as the false nine. They tried it with Aaron Ramsey uh, against Albania in a most recent friendly, a pretty wretched uh, nil-nil draw um, and, and Ramsey has looked like the most obvious candidate for that false nine role uh, albeit he hasn't played for Wales very much of late um, largely because of, of injuries at, at the wrong time so yeah I mean similar to Scotland probably you know a bit of quiet quiet confidence uh, and again I, I think the fact that um, you know three points could be enough uh, to make it through uh, the four points will almost certainly be enough to make it through, means that if Wales can win that first game against Switzerland, that suddenly takes off all the pressure going into the second game against Turkey. Uh, and if they can go into their final game against Italy with, with nothing to play for, uh, you know, with four points behind them, that, that should be enough to see them through. And although I don't think there's any realistic expectation that Wales are going to repeat what happened five years ago, I think there's a decent amount of confidence that they've got what it takes to get out of the group. Mm. Let's focus on uh, wider across the continent. Uh, Miguel, France are, are pre-tournament favourites. I, I think that's probably fair enough. Yeah, totally. Uh, I think, and especially given, I mean, just what we're saying there with England, where they've got that kind of that gap in defence. France maybe had a bit of a gap in the squad in terms of creativity or something kind of linking the attack. And now they've got that in the... Uh, the controversial figure, I suppose, given the past uh, five years of Karim Benzema. Uh, and I, I suppose that's also maybe the one question about France, whether that will affect the kind of the chemistry of the team, given how unified they were in 2018. Uh, but if it doesn't, if there are no issues, there is they, they just have a, a supremely strong squad and team uh, with very few holes in it. And one of those where if all goes to plan, and I suppose for Deschamps, that's not necessarily the most ambitious or uh, attacking plan. <laughs> They should maybe grind their way to another victory, another um, and you know another double. Tommy, you know, sorry, ta- sorry, Tommy, is is Deschamps taking a risk in bringing Benzema back just from a just from a squad harmony point of view? Uh, I mean, he's taking a calculated risk. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, Deschamps, as Miguel says, has always been someone who is really. Um, <laughs> focused on the importance of squad harmony uh, and I think that was one of the reasons why he took the decision uh, to do without Benzema for as long as he did I mean Karen Benzema has been France's best number nine for the duration of his time in the international wilderness but because Deschamps took France to the final of Euro 2016 and took them to victory uh, in the 2018 World Cup there was no need for him to be recalled uh, and you had the sort of perfect counterpoint to Benzema in the figure of Olivier Giroud uh, sort of classic French non-goal scoring number nine 
who goes through the you know the, the whole last World Cup without scoring a single goal, but still still ends up with a winner's medal around his neck. Um, and I think I think what Benzema's recall uh, reflects is an acknowledgement by Deschamps that the team was lacking something. And I think there's there are quite a few parallels that can be drawn between what happened the last time France went into a European Championship as world champions when they did the World Cup uh, Euro double in 1998 and 2000. The 1998 World Cup winners were quite a functional team, very solid defensively, um, got through by the skin of their teeth uh, in some of those knockout games in 1998. Also had a centre forward who didn't score a single goal in Stefan Givash. Two years later, they were at their absolute peak, that team. They were a much more cohesive unit than they had been two years previously. Zidane had the tournament of his life. They had, you know, uh, attacking players like Thierry Henry, who was a, a more established international player. They brought in people like Nick Ranelka and Sylvain Wiltord. And I think what Deschamps has been trying to do since the, the 2018 World Cup is, is try to make France a little bit more unpredictable. He's, he's spoken about wanting them to be a team who impose themselves on their opponents more, a team who, who don't submit quite as much as they did during the 2018 World Cup. And I think that's why he's brought Benzema back in. And, you know, we, we've only seen uh, the one game so far, which is the, the, the friendly against Wales when Nico Williams was sent off somewhat unnecessarily quite early on. And then it became an attack versus defence exercise, basically. But already uh, in that game, you saw what Benzema could bring in terms of the kind of fluidity that there is in his game and the way he sort of dovetailed with Mbappe and Griezmann. And, you know, Giroud is, is a fantastic player back to goal. Um, I think an awful lot of, uh, you know, players who played with him really uh, respect what he can bring to a team, but he doesn't bring you uh, the mobility that, that, that Benzema brings. He doesn't bring the goal threat as well. So, you know, there are already signs that, 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 that Benzema being back in the team is going to take France to the next level. That's why Deschamps has, has brought him back in. And, and yeah, it, it, I mean, I think even before that, France probably would have been most people's favourites. So when you add, you know, arguably, you know, one of the world's four or five best centre-forwards to the mix, it, it just makes them all the more formidable. Mm. Well, just the potentially interesting thing is all these these three teams are talking about England, France, Portugal. They're almost on a collision course, really potentially in the last sixteen, because if England finish top of the group, the, the likelihood is they'll get one of these two, because um, they play second place in that group. But of course, Germany on that side as well, having hammered Poland six or sorry, hammered Latvia six nil, uh, and suddenly looking very much like back to themselves. Uh, and so there could be maybe either this kind of collision, or else maybe the the kind of knockout stages, which is really where the tournament properly starts, given most of it is spent getting rid of eight teams out of 24, uh, but where we could have the um, two very different paths to draw, where two good sides, two very good sides on one side and w- one of the favourites on the other. Mm. Kieran, Portugal uh, on paper looks significantly better than the team that won five years ago. Do you, will, do you think that will translate into actual reality? Um, not if you've watched them much over the, the past, I would just say a few months, but even longer than that. They are very much the team so far that you look at the names and think that'll be a great team. But then when you watch them in person, the, the bets don't really fit together yet in terms of you know how do you get um, Bruno Fernandes, Bernardo Silva, João Felix, you know, all into a team where Ronaldo was still top dog. Um, I mean, I don't know they won the the first um, Nations League. But again, you know, they were very much a more the, the type of team we talked about that are successful in international football. You know, they were stodgy, hard to beat, didn't concede a lot of goals. 
obviously now um, we all know about the, the capabilities of, of Ruben Dias at the, at the back. Um, so again, you know, they are another team that, despite having a a lot, you know, a, a great collection of uh, attacking players and what should be on paper exciting players, yeah, I think if they're going to be successful, it's going to be one nil, one nil, one nil. You know, going back to to the the, the France debate, the one thing that I, the the one uh, doubt I have about them, and I suppose you could argue Portugal as well, is having covered Spain during their three tournament triumphs between 20, 2008 and two thousand and twelve. So many fine margins in international tournaments to be able to do it back to back to back. And for France, you know, this could be getting to three finals in a row. So for Spain, it was, you know, winning penalty shootouts, Paraguay missing a penalty in the World Cup quarterfinals. You know, all these little things um, have to, to go your way. Um, so for France, you know, they do look like the best team on, on paper, but, you know, the, there's those fine margins still have to go their way. And for both France and Portugal, again, going back to this, uh, this home advantage thing, you know, Germany play all three games at home in that group. Hungary play two in a full stadium, apparently. Um, so there's there's every chance that that Hungary just in one game you know, they're unlikely to get through. But they, if they spring a surprise and hold a Portugal or beat a Portugal, and then Portugal have to do something against France and Germany, you know there's a, there's a potential for a slip up there. Mm, we are recording before the match, but uh, listener, I I can tell you that Hungary are coming into the tournament off the back of a friendly hiding against Ireland. So that might that might have affected confidence levels ahead of that opener. So Miguel, what a Germany then, because the consensus seems to be that you know again this ridiculous squad on paper that that should be pretty well constructed, but the results that we've seen prior to this was a defeat to North Macedonia, a six 0 hammering against Spain uh, that seemingly accelerated the departure of Yogi Love, who will be will be out the door after this tournament. So. So, I mean, could that kind of work in, in Germany's favour? Could he, he could he spark something almost out of spite? Yeah, you'd wonder. Maybe it could be, I mean, there are so many cliches about the Germans in that sense. But you'd wonder, could there be kind of a, a parallel with 2002 in that sense, where they were written off going in and ended up in what was a really kind of dull, very mediocre German side. And they still got the final. This isn't a dull or mediocre German side. It's got some incredible talent in it. And I suppose one of the, one of the criticisms had been that uh, it had gone stale under low. He wasn't maximising that talent. That even the football they're playing and the approach was a little bit out of date. Um, whereas, I mean, it, it is possible, of course, that just the circumstances and the context has, you know, sparked something uh, different with, with love again, and that we see uh, almost a revitalised Germany. And I mean, that would be really interesting because I, I think you're completely right there had been that sense they're almost not quite dismissed but say in that group with um with france portugal and germany there's almost been a thinking and, and around england as well that england are probably fair to say a better team now um that, than, than germany and that out of those three teams in the, in the other group that maybe germany were the, the side they could most take whereas now if if, if suddenly they've had this blast of form uh, that, that could all be flipped on its head. I think that, that, again, it just points to one of the things about this tournament and, and why I genuinely feel it could be like 2002 or 2004 in so many senses, just because I think there's going to be so many distortions to it and, and, and so many truths that we expect could be completely flipped in their head. And, and I suppose even as the lads are pointing to there, you, you, can, you can see it in the sense, even, even, even in this strange layout where, yes, in that group, you probably would have France and Portugal ahead of Germany. And yeah, but that already could be evened out by the fact Germany are at home. Um, so it, that, that is, I mean, with that group, because it's, it's three going, going through, in normal cases, you would think that's quite a dull group that, you know, the three games against each other don't matter and they all beat Hungary and they'll all go through. But 
it is actually genuinely important because of who they potentially get in the last 16, which could be an away game to England, which none of them will want, no matter how good they are. Mm. That, that game was meant to be in Dublin, uh, so they can blame us uh, if they do have to go to Wembley for that one. Uh, Tom, how significant do you think that these distortions are going to be uh, that Miguel, Miguel talks about? Like, are they going to be the kind of thing where we'll look back at this as the Euros with almost as an asterisk, asterisk beside it, given so many sides had, had such an uneven level of, of home advantage for games? Yeah, I, I think it could be a very strange tournament. I mean, you know, all the players are going into this tournament off the back of the most unusual season that they will have ever had not just because they've all spent you know, the past nine months playing games behind closed doors with the, the constant threat of COVID hanging over them. But, you know, very few uh, teams had a, a proper pre-season last summer. There's been only two weeks between the end of the domestic club season and the start of the start of this tournament. Teams have only had a couple of friendlies to, to get players up to match fitness, to try out new tactical systems. Uh, and yeah, this idea of home advantage, I think, could be interesting because one, uh, you know, one of the defining characteristics of the most recent club season was that home advantage disappeared. You know, we had the first season in the Premier League era where there were more away wins than home wins. And if anything, you, you would expect to see that being flipped now that you've got home fans in. Uh, and, and some teams playing all three group games in front of home fans. And, you know, that we know that historically that's something that, that gives an advantage to teams. Um, plus, I mean, you know, you're expecting that players will be fatigued. I guess that's offset to a degree by the fact that you've got these enlarged 26-man squads, five substitutions per match, plus an extra six if it goes into extra time. So there's going to be a huge turnover uh, in terms of, you know, um, uh, the extent to which managers are, are able to, shake up their starting 11s and, and freshen up their teams. And yeah, I, I agree with Miguel. I think this could be one of the most unpredictable uh, tournaments we've seen for a while. And major tournaments are always unpredictable anyway. Even when teams go in, uh, you know, in, in perfect uh, conditions, you know, you look back to the last World Cup, Germany go in as, as defending champions uh, and get bundled out in, in the group phase. The same thing that had happened to Spain, uh, defending champions going into the 2014 World Cup. Um, and you sort of find that, in the, in the weeks and days leading up to the beginning of a major tournament, sort of consensus is form about who the favourites are. We're all backing France. We all think Portugal are strong. You know, we've all probably got a similar idea of who the dark horses are going to be. And those predictions are always turned on the head because football is such an unpredictable sport. And with all these other factors, because of this, you know, the, the, the format of the tournament and all the COVID complications, that's just, you know, a whole extra level of, uh, of complexity to factor in. Kieran, one uh, there is one squad that haven't uh, filled all twenty six slots, and that, and that is Spain. Uh, Luis Enrique has preferred a vacant chair to Sergio Ramos, which is you know hilarious. In fairness, uh, what's the what's the expectation around them? Well, I was just going to add on onto Tom's point there. That one thing we haven't spoken about so far in terms of COVID is an outbreak, and mm. Spain are sort of example there of, of what can go wrong. I mean, Sergio Busquets tested positive a couple of days ago now. Thankfully, it seems as if everyone else has come back negative. Um, but in terms of what you're talking about and, and Luis Enrique not filling the, the 26 uh, spaces available, that's really come back to bite them now because they've started quite haphazardly and they're releasing it you know, one into a time, calling up all these different players to train in what they're calling a, a parallel bubble um, just to make sure that they get through the sort of incubation period of uh, of Busquets is positive without anyone else testing positive, and they've got until till Saturday to do that. So that's added uh, an extra layer of complication into to Spain's preparations. 
generally um the expectations aren't there for Spain as you know as particularly as they have been in that that sort of uh, golden period. I mean even the past number of um of uh, major tournaments since there, Tom mentioned going out at the group stages in, in twenty fourteen, got absolutely outclassed by by Conte's Italy in, in twenty sixteen. Um, out against Russia in the last 16 in 2018. So um, Ramos uh, was pretty much the the last remaining um, member of the the 2008 team that that won the Euros. You know, the the one the only one left that had won all three, um, and that seems to be the sort of final cutting of the cords to to that generation. Now they like many other teams. You know, do have some promising young players in terms of. Um, Ferran Torres, for example, is seen at Man City. Pau Torres, the centre-back, is very highly thought of and did very well for Villarreal in the, in the Europa League final. Um, but if you compare that level of talent to what France or England have coming through, uh, unusually for Spain, you know, it, it doesn't bear comparison. Um, so I think that for Spain, it, it's very much a, a tournament where if they got to the quarterfinals, certainly semifinals would be seen as, as a success, um, but there's not the expectations there. Um, of going on to, to win it again. Mm. Just looking at the upper half then of the of the group stages, the, the names that we haven't discussed yet, that the leap out are Italy, Netherlands and the Belgium and Belgium, does anyone expect great things from, from any or, or all of those? I, I think Italy could surprise Italy, a few people yeah. because they've got quite a tight team. I mean, maybe a little bit like Spain in that. I th- actually, I don't think they're as good as Spain squad-wise, but like Spain, they maybe lack real top quality although Spain do have Thiago and one or two others Italy don't quite have that but they do have a team that works and is functioning and a manager in Mancini whose approach maybe suits a tournament also um, Mancini's actually this is another thing about international football actually that it, it, I suppose <laughs> the kindest will in the world it doesn't quite have the same brain power as club football because <laughs> well, most of the best coaches gravitate towards the club game so if, I think Luis Enrique is the only coach in the tournament who's, play, who's uh, been involved with a top club in the last half decade, and that was as long ago as 2017. And Mancini, then, one of the few who's been involved with a top club in the last decade. That's just about, given he got well, he left Man City in 2013. Um, so that he represents a bit of a step up, maybe in the same way Conte was in 2016, although he's not quite as good as Conte. So I think Italy could surprise a few people. A few people. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're... they're one of the, I mean, I don't know if you saw that graph of the rounds on, on Twitter the other day as well of uh, basically almost a kind of um, a chart measuring the average age of squads against the number of minutes they played and how that could be a real factor in that because, just, because it, I suppose it points to freshness. And I mean, you mentioned Belgium there. They're almost on the far side in terms of age. I think they've got the oldest in the, in the tournaments. Uh, and I suppose you're looking at Kevin De Bruyne who's coming in potentially injured after the Champions League final. Eden Hazard who knows what sort of state he's going to come in after the last years. Now, it could actually be, but which I mean, it could be to his benefit because he could suddenly come in fresh. Although, judging by the past two seasons, you wouldn't expect that. And maybe with Belgium as a whole, maybe that sense that they're suddenly just that bit over the hill, that, you know, that, that bit stale. But then, who knows? That, that, I mean, that, that, that could fire them to kind of, for one last hurrah, they all realise this is one last chance. The other thing with Belgium is we've talked a lot about the, um, the top of England's group playing second place in the Germany-France-Portugal group, there's a very good chance that um, if Belgium win their group, they play the third place. Uh, so you could you know, see them running into Germany or Portugal in, in the last 16. Um, and yeah, like, like Megs, I, I kind of feel that Belgium's time may have, may have come and gone. You know, they'll regret that, 
that 2016 game against Wales, um, the 2018 semi-final against France, you know, it was very fine margins that game, but they're one of the teams that you would feel is, has, um, has suffered most by the tournament being delayed by a year because it was already a, an old squad that has now got an extra year, particularly defensively. When you look at the, the defence, probably still going to be um, Alderweireld, uh, Vertonghen and, and Vermaelen. Mm. I did notice that from uh, Miguel's list of elite managers, uh, Frank De Boer's name was not on it. Um, on my uh, now, look, this is a somewhat ignorant opinion, but I look at like he flopped at Crystal Palace, he flopped at Inter Milan, he flopped in MLS. Like Tom, how how is he the manager of the Netherlands? Well, I suppose what's helped him there is that his his first big managerial job at Ajax was such a success, and he was you know the architect of Ajax ending what what by their standards was quite a long wait for the, the Eredivisie title and then sticking around for a few years and, and, you know, and winning a few other titles after that. And I think that probably explains why his, his stock has remained reasonably high in the Netherlands, whereas in England he is you know, associated with that uh, pretty lamentable uh, you know, few months or a you know, few weeks, whatever it was, at, at Selhurst Park. And yeah, I mean, the Netherlands are an interesting one. I mean, they feel like they're flying under the radar at the moment, given that you know, they went to tournament cycles without playing in, in a single major tournament. Um, uh, so they're not really being talked up as contenders. Uh, they're in a pretty straightforward group. Um, you know, you, you would have thought they'll, they'll qualify from that without too many problems. Um, their recent form uh, has, been, has been good. Uh, I think some of their key players are in good form. Memphis Depay is going into the tournament off the back of really successful last season at Lyon, uh, playing as a sort of withdrawn centre forward. He's now very much their main man in attack and, and has been impressive in, in their pre-tournament friendlies. Uh, Frankie De Jong looks, looks full of running. Um, Jorginho Wijnaldum as well um, has, has looked in decent nick. I think if there's a concern for the Netherlands, it's at the back. We know that Virgil van Dijk is going to miss the tournament. There's now this, this slight injury doubt over Matisse de Ligt as well, which isn't great news. Um, so, yeah, they're not, they're not going in all guns blazing. But I think the fact that they should be able to get out to the group phase means that they might be able to hit the knockout rounds with a bit of momentum. Uh, and, and we know uh, when it comes to the Dutch national team, when things fall apart, they tend to fall apart very quickly and very messily. Uh, and I think if they can just sort of, you know, uh, pick their way through the group phase without too much noise, uh, you know, and without too many distractions, they could be a team to, to look out for once we get into the knockout rounds. Mm. Let's talk dark horses. Who uh, who are your uh, picks for dark horses? Start with you, Miguel. Uh, so everyone's talking about Turkey because of, I suppose precisely what I mentioned there. A young squad that haven't played that many minutes. And I, I suppose <laughs> one response to that might be, well, if they haven't played many minutes, it's because they're not that good at the time. <laughs> but, but that doesn't appear to be the case. They've got a lot of kind of young talents. I think similar price to Ukraine uh, and Czech Republic in that these are all kind of squads with enough players kind of under the age of 24 who, who are probably a, a good core and are probably going to be picked off by bigger, club, bigger clubs at the end of this tournament. Uh, it's a good showcase for them. Uh, and they're, they're almost in kind of the right nucleus. Now, we've said that about previous teams in the past. I mean, how many times was, was similar set Serbia on these tournaments only, only for them to go out in the group stage? Um, <laughs> but if I was looking to a dark horse, if since we're probably not allowed to include Italy as a dark horse given their history, I think it'd be one of uh, Turkey, the Czechs, or uh, Ukraine. Mm. Anyone else picking anyone, anyone other than Turkey? I, I, had, I had Ukraine as well, but um, Denmark, I think, 
could could be one. Um, again, you know, very solid team. They've got uh, you know, Casper Schmeichel in goal, centre back pairing of, of Simon Kier, who's done very well at AC Milan this year, uh, and Christensen, who, who came in for Chelsea in, in the Champions League final, and you know, Thiago Silva wasn't wasn't really missed. Um, Christian Eriksen seems to another another favourite of uh, Ireland's footballing past as uh, seems to have, have come back into some form at, at Inter Milan. Uh, like so many of these teams, you know, very solid, hard to beat. Um, Hoiberg uh, and uh, Delaney in the, in the midfield as well. Goals are are concerned. A lot of good, hardworking strikers like um, like Braithwaite at Barcelona and, and Poulsen from Leipzig, um, but maybe not prolific. But they're another team that when you look at the draw and how it could open up up for them, um, they don't have the the toughest group being in with um, with Belgium, Finland, and Russia, um, and there's certainly the, the the possibility that the bottom half of the draw. Um, just I was doing one of these uh, predictor things the other day, and, and what I came up with the bottom half of the draw was uh, Denmark playing Switzerland in the last sixteen, and the winners playing either Ukraine or Sweden. So <laughs> you can see how that part of the draw could uh, could very easily open up for them. Yeah, that's the old England path to the semi-finals. <laughs> I, I can't, I can't watch any more Denmark. I have to say, I, I mean, I know, like, no harm to them, but like, I, I really don't want to be sitting watching them in the semi-finals by the time they they turn uh, they come around. Uh, Tom, we have a couple of um, of daily chance in the competition in Finland and North Macedonia. Neither really have a look of whipping boys about them. Is is that fair to say? Um, I mean, I think they're on paper at least they are uh, a level below most of the other teams at the tournament uh, with North Macedonia in particular being probably several levels below uh, the other teams at the tournament but then that's that's the whole point of of them qualifying I mean you know that's why the, the format uh, the qualifying format was opened up to, to give a path to, to one of those teams in Nations League D uh, to qualify and you know they've earned the right to do that and it's a fantastic moment for their country and um, you know we all remember what a uh, Without, without lapsing into cliche, but what a breath of fresh air I, Iceland were at Euro 2016, and you know, hopefully either they or, or Finland can you know can go on a bit of a run. Um, I'm not sure we can expect too much from North Macedonia. Although having said that, they did beat Germany in World Cup qualifying, so um, obviously uh, no no pushovers to fall back on another uh, uh, well-worn cliche. Uh, and yeah, Finland are interesting in that they are one of the few teams at this tournament who have a prolific centre forward in their ranks. Uh, even some of the top teams, you, you look at them and you think, well, who's going to score the goals there? I mean, Kieran mentioned Denmark before. They're a sort of classic example, very strong spine, but they haven't really got any reliable goal scorers. Whereas for them, they've got Timo Pukki, who scored 10 goals in 10 games in qualifying, uh, you know, hit the, hit the back of the net repeatedly last season in the championship with Norwich. So that will be, um, you know, that, that will be something that, that should work in their favour. Um, yeah, I mean, not expecting too much from either team, but uh, um, you know, it, it, it adds to the adds to the colour and the variety of the tournament to have these, you know, have these teams making their making their their major tournament debuts. Mm-hmm. Okay, predictions time. Who is going to win Euro twenty twenty plus one? We'll start with you, Tom. I mean, it pains me somewhat, given that I work with a lot of French people uh, and have lived in France. Uh, but I, I mean, yeah, I, I think if you're putting money on it, I think France for me are, are the most complete team. They're the reigning world champions. They've just added, you know, one of the best centre forwards in the world. Um, and I, you know, you, you can see them having a, an experience comparable to, to what happened at Euro 2000, where a group of players who've won a World Cup 
go to the next big tournament with another couple of years, in this case, another three years experience under their belts, a few extra players, a few little tweaks here and there, um, and, and really uh, fulfil their potential. So, yeah, I'll, I'll be uh, back in France, albeit somewhat begrudgingly. Kieran? Uh, well, given given Tom's gone for France, and that's the that's the, the boring favourites pick, and I can't pick England, so uh, I'm going to go for a, an outsider in, in Italy. Um, they're on a great unbeaten run. I think it's 27 games. They haven't they haven't lost since uh, 2018. Um, as Megs was mentioning earlier on, although I wouldn't say he was Mancini's biggest fan, I think he probably is still one of the the better coaches at the tournament. They're another one of those teams that, that benefits from from home advantage for the uh, the first uh, three group games, and and probably unlike you know what we mostly uh, associate with with Italian football, you know, they do have a lot of um, good attacking players that you know could could shine at this tournament, um, and so Barella, Chiesa, Juventus, um, Insigne, you know, this this could be the tournament that launches him as a sort of uh, a more world renowned star, um, despite his fact he's done very well at Napoli over a number of years. Um, yeah, and they uh, they haven't won it for for a long time, so um, I think I think they're due. And another reason to go firstly, they, they were the first uh, the first squad that were fully vaccinated, so they won't they won't have any uh, COVID COVID issues. And Miguel, um, well, just on that on vaccinations, had it not been for the chaos of the last few, last few days, and maybe this is maybe some you know unconscious bias coming out. I might have said Spain just because I think the profile of the squad uh, and the kind of and also Luis Enrique being their manager in contrast sort of coaching this competition but I worry that they don't have enough goals in them after seeing that Portuguese game and I think that, I think that, that could be an issue that they'll dominate games and maybe not translate into victories um, and also I'd wonder what the effect of this whole of the, the Busquets uh, positive test will be uh, whether it could affect preparation so after all that, I'm going to go for the boring answer of France as well. I, I just think they'll have too much strength. And, and they've got enough. I think that's pretty key as well. They've got enough to weather potential fatigue. Because was, one of the issues with fatigue in these senses is that, say, with, with some of the, even England to a certain extent, they've got certain key players that they pretty much have to play all the time. Whereas in France, it almost feels like there's more they could drop in and out and the overall quality of the team would, would kind of remain the same, which should keep them maybe sufficiently fresh to get through, so yeah, I'll be doing mm-hmm. go France like like Deschamps. Yeah, uh, France are one. Go ahead. Tom. Sorry, I'm just going to say one one potential reservation about France is that you know that it looks like they're going to go into the tournament with this this quite proactive um, midfield diamond with Antoine Griezmann at its tip and 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 Desch- and rather uh, Karim Benzema and Kylian Mbappe up front, but uh, N'Golo Conte is so key to that uh, system working, uh, and as Miguel says, they've got superb strength in depth they've got you know a, a long list of world-class midfielders but no one can do what Conte does and you know one of the reasons that their their World Cup structure worked was that they had Conte doing the dirty work alongside Pogba and, and Blaise Matuidi helping him out on the left-hand side I think if any of those France players is irreplaceable it is Conte so if anything were to happen to him I think their their chances of winning the tournament would nosedive uh, quite sharply. Mm. France are 92 favourites to win it uh, outright with William Hill. England are the second favourites, by the way, at 5-1. to one. Uh, Kieran Stipfer, Italy are fifth favourites at 9-1. to one. 
And then Belgium are third at six to one, then Portugal, Spain, and Germany, eight to one. And then Frank de Boer's Netherlands are all the way at 14 to one. Um, guys, thanks very much. That, that was brilliant. Uh, thanks. Uh, that's it for this month's show. We've been here in partnership with William Hill. So please do gamble responsibly. And for more information, visit gamblingtherapy.org. Thanks again to Tom, to Miguel, and to Kieran. And thanks to you for tuning in. We will be back soon. But until then, take it easy.